Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast for the issue dated November the 11th to the 17th. I'm Richard Lane. November the 14th is World Diabetes Day and this week's issue is largely devoted to the coverage of diabetes. Earlier I spoke to Dr. William Jeffcoat. He is a contributing editor of the Lancet and helped us put this special diabetes issue together. And I put it to him that, put simply, diabetes is a global epidemic that needs urgent attention. Indeed, I think when the experts in a certain field start to promote their subject, there's always a feeling that perhaps they're exaggerating the scale of the problem. In the case of diabetes, I don't think there's any exaggeration at all. Uh, The latest International Diabetes Federation estimates are that by the year 2025, there'll be 380 million people with diabetes in the world. And that's an enormous burden in terms of disease, morbidity and cost. And how is the epidemiology changing for both type 1 diabetes and type 2? Type 1 is increasing in incidence, but very slowly and has been doing for a long time. And the reasons for that aren't completely clear. There are issues relevant to the threat of type 1 diabetes worldwide. But in terms of the explosion of the disease in numbers, it's really type 2 diabetes. Some of it relates to obesity and poor lifestyle, perhaps in the more affluent countries. But it is increasingly apparent that there is also another form of type 2 in those in poorer countries where again there are lifestyle changes but not necessarily linked to obesity which are leading to an increased expression of type 2 diabetes. And one of the studies that we're publishing this week also talks about glucose control well before you get to a level where you could be considered to have diabetes and the importance that that has in terms of affecting heart attack and stroke risk. There are other data which have been previously published showing that blood glucose levels even in the non-diabetes range if you like so within the normal range increasing blood glucose concentrations are associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease. That's not new, but this is a much more comprehensive survey from the Harvard Institute of Global Health where they have looked at the data uh, worldwide estimating how much of the burden of heart disease and stroke is actually caused by blood glucose levels which are still in the reference range, if you like, so higher end of the reference range. And they estimate that worldwide that 50%, over 50% of deaths from ischemic heart disease and just short of 50% of those from stroke can be attributable to blood sugar in the normal range. And that's a really fundamental observation. And what do you think are the implications now for public health interventions? I think... Uh, The definition of diabetes has always been based on a certain glucose concentration and historically that was determined by its association in particular with certain complications of diabetes like retinopathy or renal disease. But now we're understanding that even though people haven't got diabetes, the blood glucose itself is still doing damage. And so I expect that the implications might be that we will start looking in more detail at blood glucose levels within the normal range. And if we are intervening to try and modify lifestyle, then that'll be one of the markers that we would be using. And do you think individual governments or global agencies have a role now to promote lifestyle interventions? I think education rather than implementation of lifestyle change is the key. I think it's increasing awareness of the importance of lifestyle change in 
terms of storing up this tremendous flood of disease which is going to come out in the next 20 or 30 years. So yes, there, there are great implications for communities, for governments, and then obviously for individuals to take this message on board. There are certain organizations which are already very active in promoting as well as they can. And, and again, there's an article from Neville Rigby from the Global Alliance for Prevention of Obesity, which is in this week's issue, Neville Rigby and Kate Bailey, emphasizing how their particular alliance is trying to generate momentum internationally to try and offset obesity as a, as a cause of type 2 diabetes. And what about the way diabetes varies across different populations. For example, there seems to be a real problem with type 2 diabetes occurrence in Asian populations. Yes, it's been recognized for some time that the standard measure of obesity, the body mass index, which is a factor of height and uh, weight in kilograms, is not equally applicable in people of different races. And there is a greater proportion of fat to lean body mass in people from Southeast Asia and South Asia seems to be greater than in people from other countries. And this is the reason why BMI is less reliable. And hence, the BMI is a less good indicator of people who are perhaps at cardiovascular risk. And other measures such as waist hip ratio or even just waist circumference might be better. Let's conclude, Dr. Jeff Coat, with type 1 diabetes, where we started. The key here is access to insulin, isn't it? Yes. For people with type 1 diabetes, they need insulin in order to stay alive. And the theme of this year's World Diabetes Day is disparities internationally between diabetes and the facilities which are available for people who suffer from the disease. And one of the, two of the articles really highlight uh, the problem of insulin availability in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, where the onset of type 1 diabetes can be a death sentence simply because insulin is not available. It's not just insulin availability, but actually the infrastructure which is needed to to actually administer the insulin, the delivery and education, all the rest of it that goes with it. These are really crucial issues which the global body really has to address is trying to make even just simple conventional insulins available much more uniformly across the world. Dr. William Jeffcoat. One of the research articles in this special diabetes-themed issue is the follow-up to the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study. This looks at how lifestyle interventions like exercise and healthy diet can reduce diabetes risk. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Dr. Jana Lindström, from the National Public Health Institute in Helsinki, Finland. The original aim of the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study was to find out whether type 2 diabetes is preventable by lifestyle intervention in individuals who have impaired glucose tolerance and thus have a high risk of developing diabetes. When we started the intervention study in 1993, the lifestyle risk factors for type 2 diabetes, such as obesity and sedentary lifestyle, were quite well known, but there was no proof from controlled, randomized studies to show the effect of lifestyle intervention on diabetes risk. And the original findings from our intervention study revealed a remarkable reduction in diabetes incidence during the actual lifestyle intervention phase lasting for four years in average. And what type of interventions 
are we talking about here? The lifestyle intervention that we used in the diabetes prevention study was not very complicated, really. The participants in the intervention group were given individualized, repeated dietary counseling and an opportunity to use a gym free of charge. We aimed at sustained weight reduction of 5% or more from the baseline weight and to dietary modification to reduce fat, saturated fat intake and to increase fiber intake. Also to increase physical activity with the goal of 30 minutes or more per day of some kind of moderate activity, for example, brisk walking. And these goals of our intervention are actually more or less the same that are recommended for the whole population as a normal healthy lifestyle. And the amount of reduction in risk you found in the original study was what? In the intensive intervention group, we found 50 less diabetes compared with the standard care control group. What were your main objectives with the follow-up? The follow-up study was set up to see what happens to these study participants after the intervention is stopped. Do they revert to their earlier lifestyle or do they continue with their new healthier habits? And is the effect on diabetes risk sustained also after the intervention is stopped? The key findings were that the lifestyle intervention lasting for a limited time can have long-lasting effects on behavior and on diabetes risk. It's frequently argued that lifestyle intervention is laborious and expensive. However, the sustained effect of lifestyle intervention can have a large impact on its cost effectiveness. And this is more than we can say about drugs in diabetes prevention, since the lowering risk or lowering effect seems to dissipate as soon as the drug is discontinued. So what we found was that among those people who during the intervention phase were given this intensive lifestyle intervention had 36% lower diabetes risk during this post-intervention follow-up period even though they did not have any intervention during that time. And did you know that of those people who who still had the reduced risk in the follow-up phase Were they adopting the guidelines, if you like, of the counselling in the first phase? Were they still eating healthily and taking exercise? Yes, uh, we measured also that. And according to these uh, results, the diet was still closer uh, to the recommendations compared with these uh, earlier control group subjects. And they were taking more exercise also, and their body weight was slightly lower also. Also important, though, isn't it, to point out that people mustn't be complacent just because they've taken a healthy lifestyle for a short period of time. It doesn't guarantee protection against type 2 diabetes, does it? This is true. Some people may be genetically more susceptible to to diabetes than other people. And especially for these people, drug treatment should be an option. However, in many cases, we may be able to postpone the onset of the disease and maybe also postpone the diabetes-related complications. And in the earlier analysis from our study, we have shown that the intervention not only prevented or at least postponed diabetes, but also other cardiovascular risk factors were improved. And this is important also in diabetes treatment, therefore lifestyle intervention is not wasted even if diabetes will eventually develop. So how do we now interpret these follow-up findings? What should governments or agencies do now to encourage healthier living to prevent diabetes and cardiovascular disease? In general, to really have an effect on this epidemic of diabetes, we are having public health programs should have population strategy, 
what we also need is a high-risk strategy for those who already have elevated risk to develop type 2 diabetes. And this is exactly what we are doing in our study. And our intervention was originally designed so that it can be implemented also in the healthcare system. And at this phase, the decision makers should be made to understand that if they spend money on prevention, they can save money in care. That was Dr. Jana Lindström concluding this week's podcast for the diabetes-themed issue of The Lancet, November the 11th to the 17th. Thanks for listening, and please email any comments to podcast at lancet.com. See you next week.